What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Jazz United from member-supported WBGO. This is Greg Bryant, host of Jazz After Hours. And I'm Nate Chenin, WBGO's editorial director. And this is the podcast in which we talk music. We talk what's happening. We talk what's captured our ear, captured our hearts. Um, And, you know, it's in the title. I think it's pretty clear. This is a jazz podcast. But uh, Greg and I share a conviction that that word is just a springboard. Um, And it is by no means a restriction. So as I'm sure you've gathered, this episode of Jazz United is all about Jay Dilla. That's right. That's right. One of the innovators of rhythm, as we'll talk about momentarily. Um, But there's a brand new book that both of us are recommending. Uh, Dan Charnas wrote it, and it's called Dilla Time. And um, we're going to hear from Dan a bit later on in the show. But um, we really want to center in right now on something that maybe is uh, part of the foundation of modern music, but it always wasn't that way. There's a gentleman from Detroit that changed the way we hear the beat, period. And uh, we're talking about James Yancey, Jay Dilla. James DeWitt Yancey. He was born in 1974. Uh, He was, uh, as we we may touch on again, an Aquarius. Um, And he died an untimely death um, in 2006. He was only 32 years old but had already made an incredible, indelible mark. Um, And as you said, Greg, really reconceived, reconfigured, rewired the way we experience and hear rhythm. I think it's worth noting that the book, Dilla Time, bears a subtitle, The Life and Afterlife of the Hip-Hop Producer Who Reinvented Rhythm. And we're here to tell you that this is not hyperbole. it really, it really can be borne out. It certainly can, Nate. Uh, I think about you know this Black American music tradition of ours, um, and the members in its uh, core who indeed innovated in rhythm. You know, we talk a lot about you know sound innovators, someone's timbre, or the way that they manipulate their instrument. You know that being something that has created uh, discipleship. But I can count almost on one hand uh, the name and number of rhythmic innovators. Uh, of course, they bear numerous tributaries. But when we think about, you know, Louis Armstrong and Baby Dodds, you know, that's one. You know, moving forth to, you know, Charlie Parker and Max Roach, what they did, you know, syncopating or creating rhythms within rhythms, you know, in what Louis Armstrong had done. Um, James Brown and his uh, cadre of drummers, you know, that's another movement. But for the first time in the late 90s, early 2000s, we have a hip hop producer who is so infectious, who makes wrong right, who takes the human sound and applies that to electronic rhythms. It's so infectious that musicians for the first time are emulating electronics that never really had been done prior to Jay Dilla. I think um, you're spot on. And not only is it the idea of, of human musicians uh, 
attempting to emulate machine-made production. It is human musicians emulating machine-made production that is meant to emulate human imprecision. Mm-hmm. So, so mm-hmm. we are several layers uh, deep into the matrix, which is actually a, a cultural touchstone that Dan Charnas uh, brings into this conversation. Before we go one step further, Greg, you situated us in a place in time, um, the late 90s, early 2000s. And this is the moment um, that I began to experience what Dan Charnas calls Dilla time. Yeah. Um, I didn't, I didn't understand uh, who was behind it or really what was going into it at the time, but I did experience this sound and style as an unfolding story. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you did too. So l- let's, let's take us back, um, you know, about not quite 25 years mm-hmm. um, to the emergence of this sound. And, and I'm curious for you, especially as a rhythm section guy, um, you know, mm-hmm. and in the late nineties, I was too, mm-hmm. uh, what was your experience of this time feel and this, you know, sonic strategy? I mean, what did you think of it? Where did you first hear it? Wow. Originally it struck me in Music Soul Child's first single, uh, Just Friends, which is actually a tune that Jay Dilla came to loathe because um, by this time, what was underground was bubbling to the surface. And here we have producers that had just started to copy or emulate what they were hearing uh, in groups like uh, Slum Village uh, and what was also heard on uh, the D'Angelo masterpiece, uh, Voodoo. Uh, Being such a Miles Davis devotee, even at that time, um, Miles famously chided people like uh, Hank Mobley and later John Schofield, even sometimes Paul Chambers for playing behind the beat. Simply, it's incorrect, according to Miles. Um, For someone who had perfect time like he did, being in the groove meant riding the wave of whatever the agreed tempo was. There was no lagging behind. That's considered Mm -hmm. dragging. But when we have something like, you know, player, player, track one from D'Angelo's Voodoo, right away, there's something different here. <laughs> yeah, you are there's dropped st- into yeah. uh, a developing story uh, with, with no signposts. Right. You, you're, you're just in it. Exactly. And we're agreeing on something or the musicians are agreeing on something that heretofore has not been agreed on. Um, and in subsequent listenings, I didn't get that album the first time I heard it, not mm-hmm. the first half of it. Mm-hmm. But when I heard it the second and third time, I knew we were in a different era and I knew this was something that was going to catch on uh, on the basis of people who were hip hop heads were rocking this R&B album and R&B folks who were, you know, eschewing uh, the hip hop of the day were all about this new rhythm and time feel and they weren't expressing it in any kind of, you know, technical or pedagogical way. Mm-hmm. But I could tell in the way they were moving and bobbing their heads and what you would hear, you know, down the boulevard in college, it was this album a lot. And it was yeah. never the same again. Yeah. Well, that's interesting because um, that was a point at which um, he was already kind of a, a, a name and a touchstone, you know. Um, and And for me, it was more insinuative. I feel like I heard and internalized the JD or J Dilla um, style 
before I knew what to call it, you know? Um, and for me, I think some of the earliest um, exposure uh, was through some of the stuff he did, you know, as part of, of the, the production collective, the UMA, um, you know, producing once again for A Tribe Called Quest, um, you know, doing uh, stuff like Stakes is High with De La Soul. Um, <clears throat> and there's a there's a track that uh, that Dan Charnas mentions um, by Busta Rhymes, Still Shining, um, you know, and that's one of those things. He was so deep in the background, unless you were really a part of, you know, this hip hop inner circle, you know, you wouldn't necessarily know that there was there was one sort of mad genius behind all of this rhythm science. Um, but, you know, our, our producer, Trevor Smith, shares a certain affinity with Busta Rhymes. <laughs> Let's just leave it at that. Uh, so maybe, Trevor, why don't you drop us into uh, a little bit of Still Shining right now? Rhymes uh, featuring JD, Jay Dilla on production for Still Shining. And it's very interesting to think about uh, the community that embraced uh, Jay Dilla. You know, we're talking about the Soul Quarians uh, collective here. Um, and really, before that, as you mentioned, uh, Nate, uh, the Native Tongues family, which is De La Soul, a tribe called Quest, etc. There's something in the late 90s that's really um, interesting. A lot of the major labels are now embracing, you know, hip hop, you know, commercially. They're funding it. They're seeing what a moneymaker that it can be. It's not just a fad that's going away. You know, it's here. It endures. But the way that Dilla comes to the surface is really through this community. It's not mm -hmm. a major deal. It's not a major record label situation, even with I'll go before a little bit. The Far Side album, the second Far Side album that Dilla is all over, um, he basically inhabits some of the tenets, you know, of people like Q-Tip and Pete Rock, and he brings it around in a way that is completely, you know, jaw-dropping. So much so that uh, Dave uh, Plug Two and De La Soul says, "Yeah, Q-Tip, this is like you. It's just better." Right. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> "Wow." Yeah. There was such a sort of, I don't know, not to get too woo-woo about it, but there was like a vibrational energy at that time, you know, mm -hmm. and I was in New York and I remember distinctly these albums started coming out and you'd get them as soon as they were out. Talking about Erica Badu's Mama's Gun, Commons Like Water for Chocolate. This was all coded at the time under Neo Soul. Voodoo kind of kicked it off in a certain way, you know, but th this was all the product of this this kind of um, unbelievable major label funded residency at Electric Lady Studios. D'Angelo and the Soulquarians are responsible for bringing that studio back. But this idea that that all of this creative energy, all of the the pride and the and the insight and the talent 
it was all sort of oscillating at a at a frequency that that genuflected to Dilla. It's mm-hmm. it's pretty amazing. And there was a certain amount of of ambivalence he felt about that later because you know he recognized that he set this template and he didn't necessarily get the you know the the production credit mm-hmm. that he deserved all the time you know right. it's like you you can't trademark a feel <laughs> you know what i yeah. mean yeah but certainly his his name has become almost like you know holy writ for so many musicians mm-hmm. um and you know i i will i distinctly remember talking about that moment buying you know buying those albums i remember buying bilal's firstborn second mm-hmm. um and hearing reminisce yeah and just being like oh my god like this mm-hmm. what, what is this what yeah. is this vibe you know exactly um, and so for me um you know coming to this from the jazz side of the fence you know it it, it was meaningful to know that you know even as early as that Mm-hmm. Um, live musicians were engaging with the Dilla vibe, you know? Exactly. Um, and that's what you get on Voodoo, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You sure do. You sure do. And it's, it's um, like you said, actually, you didn't know that it was Dilla unless you were on the inside of the inside. You really didn't know how much he was the spirit of that band and of that album. And I think about you know, why he was so effective, why he unified a sound and a spirit at that time. You know, in hip hop, I feel he unified the vibe of the West Coast with the specificity and artistry of the East Coast. Yeah. So you've got something that, you know, lopes and is kind of laid back, but it's got this, you know, tapestry that is, you know, unraveling and sometimes you know these odd bar lengths you know for nerds like us we're like wow that's a seven bar loop who writes Mm -hmm. a seven bar song and can make it something that's you know catchable you know Mm -hmm. um you mentioned east coast and west coast and i think it's important and i know you didn't mean to to slight anybody here but detroit is such an important part of this oh yeah um, of this rhythmic geography and specifically the idea that Detroit is the, the epicenter of techno. Um, there's so much electronic music. Mm-hmm. Um, and Alf, then it's also yeah. Motown and it's also mm-hmm. Elvin Jones, yeah. you know? And so you think of like the rhythmic legacies of this city. Um, it's pretty incredible. And Dilla, I think, and, and I think Dan Charnas argues persuasively that, that this guy could not have come out of any other locale. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a real specific rhythmic legacy that he is internalizing. Greg, I would love to hand it over to you and and have you be our DJ for the moment. Um, Can you drop the needle on a track that to you really fulfills that description and and kind of gives us Dilla time in its fullest expression? Sure thing. Sure thing. Let's listen to a track from uh, Slum Village, the group that Dilla uh, elevated primarily through, yeah, some expert MCing from Uh, Batin and T3 but Dilla's production this is a tune dedicated to their neighborhood it's called Conan Gardens 
Gardens from Slum Villages, Fantastic Volume 2. Um, and, you know, this is some of the earliest uh, JD production that really gets widespread acclaim, you know, outside of uh, the real sort of producer circles. Um, you know, fast forward a bit, and he is, he is, I mean, an essential touchstone for for all beat makers, you know, mm-hmm. and it's not just his production work behind the scenes um, on so many, you know, important hip hop and, and R&B albums. It's also um, his work as a solo artist and, and, you know, I guess you could say sound collagist. Um, and of course, the, the best known uh, work in that vein is his album Donuts, uh, which was released on Stone's Throw Records in 2006. Um, and I know you've got a special relationship with this album, Greg. Um, mm-hmm. uh, when did you first hear Donuts? Um, did you turn on to it early on? He had just died, actually. Um, so it was 06, definitely, maybe the summer of 2006, summer or fall, when I first heard it all the way through. And to be honest, at that time, I really didn't understand it. Um, yeah. I thought that it had the potential um, of something that I should come back to and really spend some serious time with. Mm-hmm. And maybe about five years after that, it was it was several years, I just put it on repeat. I was on a long car trip. I can't remember where I was going, but the light bulb went off. And sometimes an artist's most popular work the way I'm built, I tend to shy away from it. Oh, there's something else. There's mm, something else. You know, right. they're you most wanna, You want to do thing. the deep dive. Yeah, you know. Yeah. But I think it's an example of someone's, you know, most popular work perhaps being their defining statement in mm. their career. There's nothing like this album. Yeah. And I've heard people try to capture the collage, as you said earlier, that it really is. You know, is this trip hop, blip hop? I don't really know what to call it but it's funky. Mm-hmm. I want yeah. to move to it. You know, I yeah. can't sit still. And there are certain, certain donuts sprinkled throughout that I just wish would go on for 10 minutes. It's got mm-hmm. that thing that makes you push repeat multiple times. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, sh- I should say, I mean, uh, I had asked you when you heard it, you know, this album was actually released just a few days before he passed. Um, and, and it's, it reminds me of another album I love, um, David Bowie's Black Star uh, had a similar similar uh, relationship to his life and death. You know, there have been so many posthumous compilations and even full albums um, that have come out. You know, because this is a man who was incredibly prolific. I mean, he mm-hmm. was always working, always making tracks. And and um, one thing that we've learned about him is that he was not only not only the the volume of his output, but the speed with which he could um, put things together, you know, yeah. um, his pulls, his chops, like it was all very, very, um, virtuosic, you know, mm-hmm. um, like mm-hmm. he was like a, uh, I mean, Robert Glasper makes the point that, that he was like a jazz virtuoso whose instrument, you know, was the MPC and the turntable, you know, um, he had chops in that way. Mm. Um, and so, you know, it, it's an incredible body of work. Um, it's really, um, it continues to live on. And, uh, and I think that 
it is going to be understood in a deeper and more meaningful way um, now that we have this book, which I see as an essential addition to, you know, to any music library, really. Um, mm-hmm. So with that, maybe we should um, toss to our conversation with Dan Charnas. Um, man, we had a really good time with this. Um, and so uh, join us. This is Greg and me and Dan talking about Dilla Time. We are so pleased to welcome the critic, scholar, historian, author, Dan Charnas, whose book Dilla Time is, I think I'm going to say this now, monumental. Um, this is a major, major new work, and we're thrilled that Dan uh, came on to Jazz United to hang with us. Welcome, Dan. Thank you. I want to ask you, Dan, uh, Greg Bryant here, um, when you first became enraptured uh, with the sound and style uh, that is Jay Dilla, did you get it right away? Or was it something that had to grow on you? I was a record executive and producer in living in Los Angeles. I was working for Rick Rubin um, at Deaf American and then American Recordings. And during that time in Los Angeles, um, I was also friendly with the guys who ran Delicious Vinyl Records, which was Mm -hmm. the home of the far side. And I remember, you know, trying to sign the far side and then losing them to Delicious Vinyl and just loving their first album. There was a a producer by the name of Jay Swift, uh, who's just amazing and integral to their sound. And then Mike Ross of Delicious Vinyl said, well, Jay Swift is out of the group. And what's the far side going to do? That's their whole sound. He said, no, we got this kid from Detroit named JD, and he's doing tracks with them. And I wasn't the only one in L.A. thinking, JD? Who's JD from Detroit? There's no hip-hop out of Detroit. The far side's over, you know? (laughs) And I remember being in the House of Blues on Sunset Boulevard in 1995 when they had the release party. It was my first time hearing and also seeing the video for the first single, Runnin', which was a JD signature, still is a signature track from JD slash J Dilla. And blown away by not only sort of the, the freeness of the rhythms, but also his sense of harmony and melody and then he became one of my favorite producers flash to uh, maybe about four years later i convinced one of my artists chino xl to come with me to detroit to record a couple of tracks for his new album and it was my first time in detroit first time meeting jd we drove you know to the basement in Kona gardens walked downstairs there's this rapper named Common Sense is down there. I was like, why is Common Sense down here? What's he doing? Oh, he's working with JD too? Uh, we worked on a couple of tracks. Um, and it wasn't until I got back to LA and started mixing the album that I started to realize that JD was in the middle of changing his sound again to this incredible rhythmic subterfuge. I remember sitting in my car, you know, when you're mixing a record, you're A-B-ing, you're going 
listening to it in different environments or whatever and over and over again. I'm like, is that, is that hi-hat swinging? Is that, something's off here. And I literally went back into my own studio and mapped out where each of the drums fell because I couldn't figure out. And he's playing, the snare is early. (laughs) How is he doing that? Why is he doing that? But it it sounds sounds pretty good. (laughs) So that is a long-winded way to answer your question about how did I first get into JD, J. Dilla? It was a a long process of discovery. But now I realize looking back that I had visited him in that sort of very moment where he was doing something really revolutionary. Here's, here's something that blows my mind about this book. I was expecting a, you know, a biography and a cultural history of sorts I was not prepared for the extent to which you really translate rhythmic nuance for a, a lay audience. And I think it's a remarkable thing, you know, using um, all of the tools at your disposal, um, graphical and, you know, descriptive and analytical um, And so in a lot of ways, you know, this book is named Dilla Time, and it really is, in addition to a you know the story of a person you know this extraordinary artist it's really the story of a language or a or a a strategy uh, in rhythm and it's I, I wonder when you realized that that was going to be your assignment here it was actually the first assignment because i didn't know how much access i would have as a journalist to be mm-hmm. able to tell his story because as you know na- now from having read it that personal story is pretty fraught. Right. And it's got a lot of conflicts, you know, r- musical conflicts and personal conflicts. And I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that, um, you know, my colleague at uh, the Clive Davis Institute, Jeff Peretz, I'm using a language he developed to express these ideas. And yeah. um, when I first started to teach a class on Dilla in 2017, um, Jeff really helped me deconstruct, uh, you know, this concept in a way that was visual and graphic and pedagogical. And I guess the the anxiety of writing this book was, can I help the reader understand what Jay Dilla does in a way that doesn't require them to look at notes and staves and to understand musical notation? And to the extent that, you know, we were able to do that in this book, I'm, uh, I'm happy. I was reading it and marveling at the way uh, that you had synthesized that language into something that, uh, let's say, a layperson could understand. But uh, in the words of a, a wise musician who told me once, I can play it for you better than I can talk about it. You know, even when you listen to Jay Dilla and you look at a graph or you look at a, a notes, you know, on the staff, it's just not translatable. It's something that you have to hear. Nate and I were talking offline about pause tapes. And right. if you were anywhere in hip hop in the 90s and had curiosity about how beats and tracks were made and you didn't have the equipment, you made pause tapes. Right. <laughs> you didn't even know what that was called or what that principle was about. But in Dilla's case, 
The technology evolved to the SP-1200, a machine that sampled but only had a short memory, five mm -hmm. seconds maybe. But this MPC-3000, five minutes of sample time. Right. But how much of this pause tape vocabulary is Dilla really able to translate as the technology evolved? Does it really help him become who he was? Well, just for the, for the listener, right, the pause tape is when people did not have access to digital samplers but wanted to loop pieces of music, you know, loop the breaks, um, they would record a section of a record onto a cassette tape. They would pause the cassette, literally pause it, run the record back to the beginning of that section, and then cue the section again. And timing, your timing, your reflexes as a DJ and a tape operator had to be super uh, responsive, right? And that's how James learned, how JD had learned how to work. Um, but he actually liked the little timing errors that would happen because of it, you know, those divine mistakes. And, you know, there is in this book uh, this um, rosebud moment, to use a Citizen Kane analogy, where he's watching the end of a movie called A Piece of the Action. It was an old Sidney Poitier movie. And uh, Mavis Staples' theme song, A Piece of the Action, comes on at the end, and there are these claps that are layered over uh, you know, I guess by the sound people for the movie that are supposed to go along with the beat, but they keep coming in and out of sync with, and he loved that. And so what the, it, on the SP-1200, his first sampling drum machine, the way to introduce error was to simply turn off the grid, to turn off the, the glue that would fix notes to the grids and make them sound perfect. But the MPC... Uh, you know, the machine that he really started using heavily around 1998, I believe, 797-98, uh, allowed producers to displace notes in ways that could be programmed. And that is where he was able to really keep error, uh, to expand his vocabulary of error. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, you know, there's... There's this aesthetic principle that I'm sure you know in jazz that has to do with the um, almost a, a Zen-like embrace of, of error. You know, we can talk all day about Thelonious Monk. Um, you know, it's, it's this, um, you know, human imprecision as like uh, almost a hallowed thing. And... When I've spoken to jazz musicians about Dilla, that's the connection that a lot of them make, you know, that, that there's something in his philosophy that just feels familiar to a jazzier, you know. Um, now, that's not to say that the groove itself was familiar at first, <laughs> you know. There was definitely a, a, a learning curve for, you know, I think everybody. But uh, I wonder, you know, what your thoughts are on that, you know, placing Dilla as a creative force within this kind of um, context of, of jazz invention. Um, is that an overstatement? Like, are, are we stretching there? I, I don't think so. And I think you make a, a fantastic point that, you know, uh, what happened in the 1990s was uh, there was a pianist 
uh, budding teenage jazz pianist in Houston named Jason Moran, who hears one of Dilla's early productions. Uh, it's a Buster Rhymes song called Still Shining, where it's not only sort of unquantized, unglued from the grid, but it's really, um, it, it's composed all the way through. It's not looped like most hip-hop songs are. And, and so Jason Moran, as a teenager, really gloms on to this, uh, this idea that, oh my, he's one of us, right? At the same time, another young teenage pianist in Houston, uh, Robert Glasper, has the same epiphany with the same song. Um, at the same time as uh, a drummer in Detroit, Kareem Riggins, becomes a fan of this particular style. They see in James uh, something that hip-hop really hasn't done before, which is to embrace error in a way that's more than, um, I don't know, an, an accident, a uh, happy accident. It's, it's deliberate. And so by the late 90s, James has got fans in the young jazz world, at least, um, who, you know, have obviously now become the greats that we, that we know and, and respect. We talk a lot on this show about um, triumph over adversity. Uh, and when I think of the musical lineage, uh, Black American music in particular, folks like, you know, Billie Holiday, uh, Jimi Hendrix, Charlie Parker, Miles Davis, um, you know, there's something that these people are overcoming and their art is a celebration, a hallelujah for, you know, bleak circumstances. Um, in the case of Donuts, which personally I feel is Jay Dilla's, you know, greatest work, it's the one that speaks to me the most. Right. How much um, triumph do you hear um, over his illness and in the fact that it was made the way it was, the brevity of it, the, the creativity of it, um, in one sense, the bare bones nature of it. It's just Jay Dilla there with his machine. How much of that do you hear him trying to overcome or surpass um, the physical illness and limitations that he was under? I mean, it's, it's, it's everywhere. I think for everywhere in his music, to answer your question, I, I, I think what that moment his illness, which begins in early 2003 and ends with his death about three years later in, in 2006. So he suffered for three years with this disease, the last year being, you know, particularly difficult for him. He was always the guy who was going to, was in the studio. All he wanted to do and all he did, everything he did was to serve his primary directive, which is to get in the studio and make music. That's all he wanted to do. He didn't want to go on tour he didn't really like going to New York or Los Angeles. He just wanted to stay in that crappy basement and and make beats. Uh, and when he became incapacitated to a certain degree, when he had to go on dialysis, when he had to go to doctor's appointments, when he had to spend time in the hospital, the fact that he continued to use every moment he could, uh, that's the triumph. It's like, listen, he was himself. They say that uh, what the highest form of yoga is, is evolving into yourself, right? To be fully yourself. Um, 
you know, I, I th- in, in some ways that's why we like folks like Anthony Bourdain or even Questlove. Like their job is just being themselves. <laughs> that was his job to be himself. And he was himself to the very end. Uh, the fact that he moved to Los Angeles and started a new life there and continued to evolve, continued to change the way he made music, uh, leaning even more heavily into error, um, taking the freedom that Kanye West had begun to introduce into the way that he sampled and then taking that in a different direction. He was still part of the dialogue to the very end. So much so that people are still trying to catch up to him. Musicians have had two ways of relating to musical time uh, for the last 100 years. Straight time, where every beat is even, and swing time, where, where beats are uneven. And those uneven beats, which swing time evolved out of the American experience, specifically the African-American experience, is a relic in some ways, a, 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 a sort of a, an after effect or a retention of African polyrhythm just squeezed through the oppressive North American rhythmic lens. But swing and swing, you know, powered rock and roll. It powered jazz. It powered soul. Uh, To a certain extent, you can hear it in in hip-hop, right? So swing and straight, even and uneven. What Jay Dilla did in the late 1990s on a machine was to jam these two time fields together, straight and swung simultaneously. And I gave it a name, Dilla Time, right? And the reason I felt I could be so bold as to do that is that it's everywhere. It's everywhere now. And I, so I, what I try to do in the book is trace the evolution of how that rhythm, that rhythmic time feel began to make its way out. And so D'Angelo and Questlove are some of the first musicians, along with Pino Palladino, uh, Roy Hargrove, to begin to, to work as traditional musicians to trying to emulate this rhythm that was initially created on a machine. But then it moves. It moves to a touch of jazz, the collective in Philadelphia out of which Jill Scott came, right? Um, then Michael Jackson is suddenly making records that sound like Dilla records. And then uh, the jazz folks like Glasper, right? And and Jason Moran, all taking different parts of, of Dilla ideas. So at the end of the book, there's a chapter where I show, I try to show how Dilla has made his way into the jazz world, how he has made his way, you know, still maintains a hold on hip hop through the work of Kendrick Lamar and Terrace Martin, for example. Uh, And then in the sort of uncategorizable pop music of groups like Hiatus Coyote, but there's so many others that I could have included, Tom Mish, uh, you know, John Bellion um, uh, of the 1975 on their late, you know, their last album, they had a song that was completely limping through Dilaton. It's everywhere. I mean, <laughs> I'm on YouTube watching random videos and like music beds for production houses are in Dilaton. It's everywhere. It's, <laughs> it's the part of the musical vocabulary that we speak. Jason Moran says... I go into jazz conservatories now and people say, oh, a, a Dilla feel, like they would say an Elvin Jones feel yeah. Yeah. or a Tony Williams feel. Yeah. What I hope is that, that it sticks. 
Well, you've shed so much light here and, uh, and, and also, you know, not only in the book, but just in this conversation, I'm so glad we got a chance to, to talk this over. Um, and I'll just say again, congratulations. Um, I'm, I can't wait to see how this book sort of lands and resonates with all these different factions, you know, um, maybe even starting a few arguments, which will be fun to watch. I don't know how, I don't know how fun they'll be for you to watch, but you know, it's, it's great. It's really, um, it's really cool that this is out in the world. I think this is one of those, um, this is one of those books that is, you know, the, the, the discourse around this artist and this whole sound, um, is forever changed, you know, because we have this reference point now. So um, good on you, man. And congratulations again. Thank you, Nate. Thank you very much. It's such a, such a pleasure to even be able to, to talk about this with knowledgeable uh, folks who love this stuff. Our chat with Dan Charnas, man, we had a good time. I'm really glad he was able to come through. I feel like we could have kept talking and talking. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there was so much <laughs> yeah. there. And he's, yeah. uh, I, you know, I love, I love interacting with someone who has, who has done such immersive work, you know. Um, but I, I, I want to pick up on something. Um, mm-hmm. We touched on it in that conversation, but the idea that this is a revolution in rhythm that has become part of the sort of essential vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love Greg, to hear you talk a little about how that has how that has affected you in practical terms, you know, did you notice a shift whereby, you know, you as a bassist playing with drummers, like there was a learning curve, there was a struggle, and then now it's kind of just just part of the language. Like, how, how did that play out? Yeah, I think you're exactly right about that. Um I think what it has done, it has sharpened everybody's sense of where the beat is, because to be able to manipulate it, you know, just as Dilla did, you know, you have to be able to have that internal clock, that internal pulse that keeps you straight, even what when what you're hearing in your ear may be a millisecond ahead, you know, or, or behind. Sometimes it drags even harder, but somehow, you know, if you've got the right cats around, you can keep that thing, you know, pulsating and keep people's heads nodding, you know, throughout, you know, whatever venue you're in. Um, there's also a 50% chance if you tell a gentleman or a lady, you know, under 40 years old, hey, we're going to play a backbeat on this tune, that it's going to have a Dilla feel. You <laughs> almost have to tell folks, hey, man, I don't want that on this one. We just want to play it, you know, straight in the pocket. But on the next one, yeah, we're, we're going to do the the Dilla thing. He's had such an impact on young musicians who, you know, are, are trying to get in, into the groove. <clears throat> I find mm-hmm. it interesting also that maybe besides um, Trap, which, you know, admittedly, I know very little about, I really haven't heard anything come after Dilla as far as coming into the public consciousness where, you know, not just hip hop records, but instrumental music or or music with vocals are taking on a different groove time feel. I really haven't heard much mm. innovated behind what he's done. Yeah. Well, I think it's still, it still feels au courant, you know, mm-hmm. like, like that, that feeling still, it still registers as contemporary. And, and when you look at popular music, so often the, 
the production decision is made to either do something in a throwback mode mm-hmm. or just avoid rhythm altogether. <laughs> you know, yeah. you look at like the work of Billie Eilish and uh-huh. her brother Phineas, and it's like if there's a beat, it's like a it's like a finger snap. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's like yeah. it's it's more of a throbbing sensibility than a than a grooving one. Yeah, but, but you know, back to this idea of like you know, quote unquote, real musicians, um, working with Dilla time. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's undeniable that the steward and the, and the kind of, um, ambassador of this approach is Robert Glasper. Mm-hmm. Um, you and I have talked about Glasper on this podcast quite a few times now. Um, but you know, he actually in conversation was someone who helped me to understand, um, that Dilla really was thinking like a jazz musician, you know, had mm-hmm. a, had sort of an ear, mm-hmm. like a, like a jazz musician's ear, and interacted with rhythm sections, you know, understood how to be, quote unquote, a bassist, and a pianist and a drummer, you know, but but to but to do it in a way that was that could only be done by someone with with his arsenal, with his set of tools. Um, <clears throat> It's been really cool to see how Glasper's example and his and really, you know, he's very vocal about it, right? Mm-hmm. Like he he he's almost like an evangelist for yeah. the, church, the church of Dilla. Yeah. Um, but that's been really, really influential, you know. Mm-hmm. And and I dare say if you circulate among the conservatories, you know, uh, in, in the last decade or 15 years, you're you're more likely to hear young musicians emulating Glasper, emulating Dilla, mm-hmm. than you are to hear them, you know, trying to do like a Tony Williams thing even, you know, which is, yeah. which is, I mean, no value judgments there. It's just kind of, it's the time we're in. Uh, I think we should acknowledge because this is, you know, technically a jazz podcast. Um, Dan towards the end of this book, he talks about the afterlife, right? He talks about not only what Glasper does with this mm-hmm. legacy, but also um, people like Jason Moran, who, sure. who also came early to Dilla Appreciation and has incorporated that time feel with um, his, you know, his partners in rhythm, Taurus Mateen and Nasheet Waits. Mm-hmm. Um, Vijay Iyer, who has, you know, also uh, engaged with the Dilla vibe, um, uh, there's a there's a great um, couple of examples of that in his work with Taishan Sori, um, mm. you know, both in a, a recent trio recording that we that we admire and also uh, in Far From Over, which features a larger group. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, that that backbeat thing. Um, and, and also, um, you know, Vijay brings this kind of cyclical understanding of rhythm um, and this comfort with. Um, the elliptical qualities, you know, mm-hmm. that, that you can find in Dilla's music. And so there, there are all these fruitful examples of this rhythmic language mm-hmm. flourishing in improvised music. Yeah. Yeah. Not to get us too far off the grid, you know, so to speak. Um, Dilla's ear was just, you know, fantastic too, you know, mm-hmm. harmonically, you know, how to superimpose, you know, this horn line over this, you know, sample that still had a vocal in it. And somehow you're not distracted when an MC would spit bars over that 
but at the same time, this track, you know, is issued on its own complete without anything else, you know, needed. The time that he comes along in history is just perfect. Mm -hmm. And how he ascends is just perfect. And the technology that is available at the time of his arrival is just perfect. (laughs) He's the man of the hour. And um, thank goodness for him, man, because we've all been changed. I would argue um, for the better, man, not many people come and change the beat. He did that. Yeah. Let's toss to uh, a a track that popped into my head as you were just speaking, Greg. Um, And this is going back again to Slum Village. Um, Mm -hmm. Get This Money, which uh, was actually one of the one of the tracks that that first circulated from this album. Um, And I think if you're a a jazz listener, you will recognize uh, one of the samples in this particular track. Get This Money from Slum Village featuring Jay Dilla uh, with a sample from Herbie Hancock, the uh, 1978 record Sunlight. If you check out the track Come Running to Me and you put your finger on your record player, on your wax, just barely, you can <laughs> slow it down just a bit. And at a certain point in that tune, what jumps out of the speakers will be that exact portion that uh, Dilla uh reworked for that beautiful track. And, you know, Herbie brought that tune back into his active repertoire. And it was, you know, I have to think it was a direct response to this sample. Um, You know, one of the things that Mm -hmm. maybe we'll see in 2022 is a long-awaited Herbie Hancock collaboration with Terrace Martin. And I don't know, uh, it, it would be fascinating to hear I mean, Herbie is not someone to be caught on the back foot of anything. Um, so it would be it would be pretty cool to hear what Herbie does with Dilla Time in 2022. Oh yeah, oh you yeah. Know, I'm just putting that out there. I don't have yeah. any I don't have any inside information. Oh, just... but you have phone numbers and email addresses. <laughs> <laughs> you, you can start the campaign. Oh man. Um, well, we hope that you have enjoyed this this uh, episode. Um, stick around because we've got a, a couple more things we want to share with you, starting with a segment we like to call This I Dig. Absolutely, folks. These are just things that um, we encounter. They could be musically related. They could be non-musical. Just things that we've been uh, digging on. And of course, we borrow that title from the great Hank Mobley from his Soul Station recording. Um, Nate, what have you been digging on uh, this week? Well, you know, we've been talking about um, vinyl a lot on this Mm -hmm. show, you know, and we've been talking about just how much we love the culture of of LPs, um, how much we love, you know, digging through the crates. Uh, This is obviously relevant to our Dilla conversation. Mm -hmm. And we've also been talking about digital music, you know. Um, Well, there's there's something in between. And and I was... uh, kind of happily amused 
by a piece by Rob Sheffield that was published mm-hmm. in Rolling Stone recently. Okay. And the headline is Jewel Box Heroes, Why the CD Revival is Finally Here. Mm. Um, and it's a kind of love letter to a, you know, an often unloved format. Um, and, you know, I don't agree with everything he says, uh, or rather I should say, uh, I think he doesn't touch on everything that I would, but it's a welcome piece um, because uh, if you're like me, you still have a lot of CDs and I mean a lot, too many. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, um, jazz and classical music are really two of the only um, musical formats or genres that still mess with CDs on the regular, you know, mm-hmm. like it's, it's still a really important part of, yeah. of our transmission system. And, and I think it's worth acknowledging, um, you know, that not everybody has moved on. And, right. and there and there may still be a place, a, a, an important place for this f- this little piece of musical technology. So um, I recommend the piece. I think it, it's a good conversation starter. And um, if you are are someone who who got rid of your CD player some time ago and uh, but has yet to offload those jewel boxes, maybe maybe it's time to invest in a player again. You know, it. Who knows? It might. Uh, it actually might reawaken some uh, some corners of your musical library. <laughs> I really hope so. I hope it comes back, man, because uh, there's a storage unit uh, that is filled <laughs> to the brim <laughs> right now. That uh, yeah, I, I'm having a, a separation anxiety or, or a hoarding attack or something. I can't let them go. I can't let them go. Yeah, no. But uh, hang on, it, it's you, coming, man. It's around the corner. Okay, okay. Holding my breath here. Holding my breath. Um, for my pick this week, uh, it is directly Dilla related, um, a very obscure band, uh, that I actually checked out by virtue of a sample on donuts, uh, the band Motherload, a Mm. Canadian pop group that I was heretofore unfamiliar with. Um, but in doing some research and digging for this show, I just wanted to kind of figure out if I could identify some of the original samples and source material. Yeah. Uh, that Dilla has used. Um, probably my favorite track is uh, Welcome to the Show on Donuts. And that is based largely around Motherlode's only real hit. They were a one-hit wonder. I think they had two albums, one in 1969, one in 1970. But from that first album, uh, their hit uh, song was the title selection from that album, When I Die. And man, just to put that on in the car and to hear the original tune from start to finish, man, they were onto something. You know, bands like maybe Chicago or Blood, Sweat and Tears, I think, mm-hmm. share some kinship uh, with their blend. Um, but man, I tell you, it is the mark of a hip crate digger and hip hop producer to be able to find where the gold is in a given piece of music. And by the end of the song, that's really where the get down is. And that's the portion that Dilla really takes and brings it to life in a brand new way. So shout out to the group uh, Motherload. I've been digging on them this week. It's cool to picture him, right? Like pulling that record out of a bin and maybe he knew the band, maybe he didn't. And just like putting his headphones on and, and just listening with kind of this surgical precision. Yeah. 
you know? Yeah. And it's like, okay, there it is. There's, mm -hmm. there are, you know, there's like four seconds I can use here, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. It's pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. um, well, thanks for hanging with us today, everyone. This has been a really fun episode for us to dig into. Um, we are continuing to enjoy the fruits of Jay Dilla's legacy. Um, we want to thank uh, WBGO Studios, which is our home. That's we want right. to thank uh, members and supporters of WBGO, Newark Public Radio, which makes possible this show and so much else that we do. Uh, we hope that you will not only subscribe to Jazz United, but also make a contribution to WBGO if your budget allows. Um, and we want to thank our producer, as always, the fearless Trevor Smith uh, for his work here and every week. Um, thanks, Trevor. Thanks for chopping it up. Yeah, uh, Greg, uh, take us out. What, what's a tune that we can ride out here in our Dilla episode of Jazz United? You mentioned uh, Brother Glasper and his cohorts, um, Damion Reed and Vicente Archer. They had a practice on their first two albums of uh, investigating uh, some of the harmonic and rhythmic genius that was Dilla. So I think we're gonna go out with uh, the Jay Dilla lute uh, from Robert Glasper's original trio here on our show. Folks, um, thank you for checking us out. Subscribe to us, please. If you haven't, leave us a five-star review. That helps us. If you dig us, if you're angry with us, it doesn't matter. We want the visibility, folks, and we need this show. Um, to be strengthened and that's the only way you can do it by you know sharing and, and, and being part of this community we thank you so much for checking us out join us again real soon next time take care Thank you for listening to Jazz United. Did you know that WBGO Studios has other shows and podcasts for the curious listener? Hear Music on the Edge with The Checkout, hosted by Simon Rentner. The Biggest Names in Jazz on Jazz Night in America, hosted by Christian McBride. Interviews with sports greats on Sports Jam with Doug Doyle. And introducing the Singers Unlimited podcast, hosted by Michael Bourne. Hear all of these shows and more on your favorite podcast platform or at wbgo.org.